we're speeding through this Nevada highway, middle of nowhere. And without realizing it, I was getting so impassioned that my foot hit the accelerator. We're now going like 120 miles an hour, uh, yelling at each other. And finally, it got so contentious that we... Hey, baby. Hey, honey. I really loved our conversation with Jordan. He's the founder of America's Frontier Fund. He's the author of Union, and he's a Marine. Very impressive guy. He raised money from Eric Schmidt and Peter Thiel, $500 million fund, and it just blows my mind. I really enjoyed talking to Jordan about how people across America can come together, regardless of what side of the political aisle they're on and how we can really form a union in what feels like a really polarized climate today. And also kind of how the U.S. can uh, set itself up for to be a competitive economy in the global context. So enjoy y'all. This is a really, really cool one. Hi, Jordan. Hey, Jen. Thanks for joining. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. I've been really looking forward to it as well. How are you feeling? I know you were a little under the weather. I feel much better, but you could probably still hear it in my voice a little bit. It sounds nice. It's like Scarlett Johansson raspy. So it's great. Yeah, I, I, I do <laughs> Lean love into it. Like immediately okay. post, post sickness <laughs> raspy voice. It's, uh, it always sounds cooler. Maybe it's just, yeah. but it sounds cool. <laughs> no, no, it's not in your head because I pointed it out. <laughs> All right, well, let's kick it off with just a short question for me. What are you proud of yourself for in the past week? You got healthier. Anything else? Uh, in the past week? Um, well, I'm fundraising right now for my fund. Yes. And we've had a major uh, engagement with a big state that hopefully will put a huge amount of money into our fund. And in return, we're going to build a venture studio to help promote economic development and tech commercialization in their area. And uh, there were some weeks of preparation for this. And we had the meeting yesterday, which went incredibly well. And so I'm proud of, of you know, my team for the prep that went into it and the ideas that went into it. Um, and it just, it felt so good to have a great meeting. So that's uh, awesome. It kind of brings together everything I've been working on the last year or so. Congrats. Can you share or is it still private news? Can you share the still, state? Still, pri still private news. Okay. When will it get launched? When can we celebrate? Uh, probably towards the end of the year. Okay. Well, we'll be here. So we're neighbors in Austin, so we can celebrate with you. That's amazing. That's tremendous. I love those when you're working you. up towards something and then it comes together and you had to power through while you weren't feeling great. So even more. Yes. Well, the team really uh, picked everything up and they did a great job. So I'm uh, very proud of everyone. That's awesome. Go team. And then what's bringing you joy these days? Well, my fiance and I are wedding planning and yeah. uh, that's been a lot of fun. I think <laughs> uh, you just got married, so you can tell me yes. how it was for you. But I think the wedding planning everyone talks about is the super stressful time. And we've just kind of had fun with it. It's, it's going to be a small wedding, super intimate. Yeah. And we want it to be just like a fun, kind of relaxed vibe. And so uh, it's been fun. We, we spent all week uh, uh, looking at wedding bands which is nice. Cool. Uh, and my fiance <laughs> is Israeli. So we've been especially looking for like an Israeli band. Um, hard to find in the US, but uh, there's some like quirky fun ones. And so uh, I think that's been, that's been a lot of fun. Oh, I'm so on board for us too, as we kind of thought of it as the wedding is really optional. You get married legally. And then if you're going to throw a wedding, it's you don't need to do it. So why have it be a source of stress? Just have fun with it uh, and do it in your own way. So I love that y'all are having fun with it too. And Karen's great energy. So I can totally see her infusing all the good stuff in, in the process with you. Well, she has great energy. She's also a designer. So it's all going to look incredible. Ooh. And she's a <laughs> true. Rock singer. She, she's the lead singer for a rock band. And so what? one of her ideas is that at some point she and her band are going to go out and play. <laughs> <laughs> which I think will this be is a lot excellent of fun. news. So Marcin, okay, so we need to connect with Marcin because we've been trying to get into a band. Um, and so we will definitely connect more with Karen offline on this. Is does her oh, band yeah, perform she, in Austin? 
No, they're they're all in New York. So she, she needs she needs people to jam with in Austin. So uh, there you go. Amazing. What are they called? Uh, local law. So they, they're all in real estate, and local laws are like a big thing in real estate. So <laughs> I love that. It's a fun nerdy nerdy title. Amazing. Uh, Machin plays drums. He says poorly. He says poorly, but I think he's quite good. Uh, and all I right, like well, to sing a little bit. So if Karen needs a backup singer slash someone else to join. I'm down and we can find a studio. She would, she would love that. And I'm a great groupie. So when you guys form your band, I'll, I'll be there too. <laughs> Amazing. We've been doing some fun little projects. First wanted to chat about your book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So thank you so much for writing that. It's called Union, a Democrat or Republican in a Search for Common Ground. And it talks about how Americans all across the country, what they have in common, despite political affiliations. And you wrote this with your law school classmate, Chris, and y'all took road trips around the country and documented your experiences and shared. Would you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for you? Yeah. So I think like all, you know, great projects, this sort of started on a lark, like there was no plan. Uh, I was in law school. I hated law school and I didn't (laughs) want to go to class. My uh, best friend at the time we had just met, but now he's my best friend. Chris was a journalist and then a diplomat, and he also hated law school. And so, why did you guys hate law school? It's you know, it, I think we had this vision of law school as this like incredible place for robust debate and dialogue. And then you get there first year, and you're studying you know torts and contracts, and it's so mm. like, granular. And every night there's like 600 pages of reading and uh, mm. it, it, you know, it, it attracts a certain kind of very like diligent detail oriented, yeah. that is not me. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> yeah, very quickly after you go down, like, okay, I, I am not going to be a good lawyer. Uh, and so instead I decided to just spend time kind of meeting people, taking classes outside the law school. And I, it turned out to be an incredible, uh, three-year experience. Um, and I think the best part was like the people I met. And so yeah. Chris became a very close friend very quickly. And one of the things we quickly bonded over was road trips. And I think for both of us, road trips were this very romantic thing that we knew our parents did back in the day. And, you know, before that, there's this incredible genre of road trip narrative, like Jack Kerouac on the road and um, uh, John Steinbeck with Travels with Charlie. And, and so we, at some point, we just decided, let's take a trip. And so we, we did a road trip from uh, New Haven, Connecticut to California. And this was like in 2016. So the country at the time was super polarized. The law school yeah. was super polarized. Everybody's at each other's throats. And you get out on the road and it's just this beautiful, peaceful experience. And you can see the country differently. And everywhere you go, it seems like people are warm and welcoming. Uh, they invite you in for meals. And Chris and I come from very different political backgrounds. I am a Republican. I'm a Marine. He's a Democrat and a pacifist and a journalist. And so we often would have these robust, uh, maybe even contentious arguments, but on the road, we found that we could have them in a, in a much cooler, calmer way. And we can often identify like points of common ground. And so at the end of that first road trip, it, it felt like this, um, special space for the two of us, uh, to have these deeper conversations. And so um, coming out of that trip, we decided to just keep doing them. And we had a few more road trips. Um, and what we found on the way was we were meeting all these people who were teaching us something about the country that painted a different narrative of what we were hearing in the national media. And finally, we decided one day that these stories were so compelling, we wished other people could could hear them and meet the, the characters on the road that we were meeting. Um, and so we decided to turn it into a book. And from uh, our fourth road trip on, uh, we ended up doing seven. Uh, uh, that fourth road trip on, we we very deliberately were were writing a story and looking for parts of American life that we felt spoke to something deeper we all shared in common and to these values that we think embody who we are as Americans, even if we might disagree on every single political issue under the sun. Right. I remember the climate in 2016, the political climate. This was around when we had Hillary Clinton running with Trump and lots of very strong opinions. Interestingly, my impression was, so we were at, I was at Stanford at the time and I was at Harvard Kennedy School, which is 
political school. And I actually felt like schools weren't um, facilitating a space to have more open dialogue and conversations. And you mentioned that it felt to you like law school was polarized. Sounds like your experience in school was that you did have that space for both Republicans and Democrats to be able to speak their minds and have conversations. Well, I don't, not exactly. So I, I was at GSB at the time uh, yeah. as well. Um, it, my experience at law school is people are um, extremely political and whatever we had at, at Stanford GSB, Yale Law School is like a whole nother level. Um, mm -hmm. And as a result, the conversations filter out into everything. It's every, every dinner conversation, every cocktail hour, every like class, it was omnipresent. And it was very oppressive, uh, you know, even as a very moderate Republican, I, I felt like it was very hard to have good conversations because it so quickly became this, like, you know, if you're on this side of the line, this side. You're like evil because you support right. Trump. Even that was my experience. Close yeah. to what my position was, you know, it, uh, I, I might not agree with Trump, but it also doesn't mean I agree with Democrats. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so it was hard to stake out that middle ground, uh, just given the way people drew battle lines. You know, it's either like you're on my side or you're not. If you're not, you must be, there must be something wrong with you. And yeah. I felt like at Stanford, it wasn't quite as bad, but also there wasn't, there wasn't really much dialogue at all about it. You know, people would talk about it privately, but it certainly didn't, um, there wasn't a space created where there could be a, a vibrant, intellectually honest discussion about you know, the political sides and the virtues and benefits of one side or the, you know, the cons of the other, um, we just didn't have that. And so I think once the election happened, I remember the next day, I, I, I'm curious if you remember it. Uh, yeah, it I do. Like a funeral. It felt like a it funeral. It did, yeah. I, and, remember, yeah. And I think it was, it was like total shock. Um, and, and so uh, I think for Chris and myself to have time on the road to really like digest what happened, to uh, find ways to, to talk about it, um, became this really special thing we had that we weren't getting okay. anywhere else. I agree. And that's why I find the book so important. You mentioned you were able to, with these road trips, have a space wherein you and Chris would be able to have these conversations in a manner that felt less charged. And I think for all of us, it's about creating these spaces to have these types of difficult conversations in a cooler and calmer way. So can you say more about how you were able to have these conversations on the road trip with Chris? And then I'm so curious to learn more about what you learned from the from the folks that you met along the way as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so we took the road trips in my grandfather's old car. Uh, so it's mm. this beat up old Volvo. Um, it had like a terrible turning radius. Uh, and <laughs> so we, we called it the boat just because the way it turned. <laughs> and uh, the, 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 the car really became almost like a third character in the book because it was <laughs> the setting for all of our conversations. And I think the first road trip, uh, we just, we had so many fun little experiences where, you know, the car broke down, we got a speeding ticket and had this crazy engagement with an Idaho police officer. Um, we ended up doing all these 5am uh, uh, hikes through national parks. And, and as a result, it just became the setting of, of shared experience and bonding for the two of us. And as a result, in a way, it became almost a sacred space. And I think in our lives today, it's so rare to have that sacred space where it just, it feels different from ordinary life and therefore allows you to be more vulnerable, to uh, talk in different ways. And I think that's what the car became for me and Chris. And so as the road trips went on and we did try to talk about harder and harder conversations, uh, the car allowed us to do it in this setting that, that we felt like we couldn't violate the principles of it. You know, the principles of, you know, grace and charity and uh, understanding and wanting to see uh, the best in the other side's view. And the reality is that's so hard given today's political environment and the emotions that come up. And, and yet every time it broke down for us, the car brought us back together and allowed us to heal. And so I think that's, that's where it really became this, this special place for us. And we developed our own, you know, we didn't really think about it until we actually had to sell the book, but we had sort of developed these unspoken principles in the car um, that we would essentially get away from political labels. Like I would never yeah. call Chris a Democrat or he wouldn't call me a Republican because we don't feel like those define us. And there are other things we do define ourselves with. Um, like I define myself as a Marine and a you know, Jewish American and he defined himself as a journalist and the son of a single mother who, uh, you know, that's what shaped his views, not that he was a Democrat. 
Um, and then, you know, we really needed a priority to always heal. Uh, you know, whenever there was a hard conversation, whenever we said something that um, didn't sit right with us, we always found the sort of will and grace to come back and apologize and, and talk about what happened. So um, I think uh, I think that's really what created this um, this special space for us. And it sounds like you were able to find the will to come back together and heal because you spent time with each other, you respected each other, you cared about each other as human beings. Does any example come to mind that you can share with us of a hard conversation or conflict that you had and how you were able to heal through that? I ask that because I think the whole country could use examples like that. Um, yeah. So, you know, first, I, I think there's um, something really special about getting to know someone's family, getting to know their um, their histories. And time together on the road did that. Like Chris stayed with my family. I stayed with his family. Um, and we really built these, like, understanding of each other's backgrounds and, and what, you know, who we were um, beyond just like the positions the or labels. labels we have. And I think so much of our political division comes from not seeing someone as a, as like a human with a history and experiences that might be shaping who they are, but instead it's just like the political labels and we ascribe value or judgment based on what we assume we know about them because they wear a Trump hat or they you know, were carrying a Hillary sign. And so I think that really helped for me and Chris. Uh, I think one very dramatic fight we had uh, that it, it was very early on, I think it was on our third road trip and it almost ended the trips. Like it really almost broke us apart. Um, and we write about it in the book. Uh, we were, we were driving through Nevada. We had just been to a Trump rally uh, in Phoenix, which was an insane experience. Like there, there were, uh, we went inside to the rally and then outside the protesters and after the rally, it descended into chaos. Um, uh, tear gas went off by the riot police. There were you know, conflicts between Antifa protesters and Trump uh, supporters. And Chris and I were running around all evening, kind of shadowing the protests and, and seeing what was happening. And I think we were, we were almost um, euphoric with the fact that we had seen everything the same way. You know, normally both sides have two different realities of what's going on. It's almost like watching two different movies. And for the first time we saw the same movie, we could, we could make the same judgments about what we saw. And so in the car, as we were discussing that, and Chris was sort of uh, talking about how the Trump rally inside was maybe not as divisive or crazy as what Democrats see on the media. And I was talking about how I was sort of impressed by some of the protesters and the level of dialogue going on. I think we dropped our guards a little bit. And I ended up saying something about how I, I really don't like how Democrats in the media, whenever uh, Trump says something about uh, immigration and illegal immigration, they use his words to essentially paint all Republicans as xenophobic. I don't think it's a fair reading of either his rhetoric or Republicans' attitudes. And that triggered Chris. And he, he immediately lashed back uh, and said something about how, well, his rhetoric is racist and it is xenophobic. And how can you say that? And it led to this shouting match between us on the drive. And you know, we're speeding through this Nevada highway, middle of nowhere. And without realizing it, I was getting so impassioned that my foot hit the accelerator. We're now going like 120 miles an hour, uh, yelling at each other. And finally, it got so contentious that we just stopped talking. And we didn't talk to each other for about an hour. And I think that you're, you know, in that moment, your mind goes through all these spirals of like, how can you say that? I don't know this person anymore. Like maybe we should end these trips. Why am I dealing with this? He was so unfair to me. And both of us were going through this. And then about an hour into it, Chris said to me, um, I, I'm still too angry and too hurt to talk, uh, but I want you to know that I love you. And it makes me emotional just like thinking about it. But it was, it was that moment that like broke the spiral. And so finally, we're both able to realize like, man, we were both uncharitable. We both said things that we shouldn't have said. And um, I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it kind of came down to both of us had personal experiences with immigration that were shaping our views. And, you know, ironically, that evening, we spent the, the night with uh, the woman who raised me. She was my babysitter growing up, and she was once an illegal immigrant. And I consider her a second mother. She considers me a son. 
And I think for Chris to realize that, you know, I can have this very personal relationship with, um, with illegal immigration, uh, just given my, my own personal experience, but still have a different view than him on what the law should be and how policy should be. I think it was very eye-opening and vice versa. I realized that the way I talked about the issue, um, you know, really triggered him because there are people in his life that have been affected by political rhetoric and it's much more personal than just a policy view. And I think for both of us, that, that became the defining, you know, aspect of our conversations that, you know, on all these political issues, uh, people have experiences and emotions that come up that are not reflected in the debate. We, we have the debate, but underneath it, there's this well of emotion. And we wanted to try to find that in each other and realize that, um, you know, we might be disagreeing, but it, but uh, there's something deeper there. And if we ask those questions and we try to figure out why someone was coming to their position, it made it much easier to accept why we disagreed. Um, and, and, you know, finally, that ability to just say, I love you, despite our disagreement, that, that at the end, um, I think that's the heart of our book is, is that like story of friendship and love and how it transcends difference. Yeah. And what I find beautiful about this story is still going back to the human in Chris and Jordan. It sounds from the story that you just shared that the disconnect there was you feeling unfairly painted into this label um, and Chris feeling somewhat hurt that you weren't maybe acknowledging his point of view wholly. And I love that you were both able to work past that, see the human being behind it and understand what was driving these points of view to your point. Like he had experiences with immigration. He was fascinated to see that you also had experiences with that. I think it boils down to really knowing that we're all human beings with things that we care about at the end of the day and getting to know that who that actual person is can bring us together. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's, that's exactly right. And, um, the beauty of friendship and relationships is that I think it lets you bring your full self to the relationship. And it also makes you, I think, a better person by showing you other sides and, and different views that you might not otherwise receive. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious as, as you yourself have, uh, have um, an immigrant story and uh, you know, your partner's an immigrant. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think so often, we don't get to always share that full side of ourselves in, in just our normal lives. And I'm curious, like how, how relationships and, and being able to um, bring that deeper background and story, how it's played out in your relationships and what you've learned about yourself and what you've learned about Americans from it. Yeah. So I come from a country where there's really not much mobility because of lack of opportunity. And so for me, being able to come to the United States when I was 16, because I won an academic scholarship was just huge change in my world because it meant I could now work hard and get somewhere, which isn't necessarily the case in Sierra Leone. There's not that many jobs, lots of things that I hope we can work on improving there. Uh, and in the U.S., I remember actually in the summer, uh, the first two summers of undergrad, I was interning. I needed money to pay for my living expenses. And I was interning in this part of uh, Massachusetts in the North. And this was a small town, small community of Republicans who weren't, they were used to maybe this anti-immigrant rhetoric uh, and didn't know as many people that weren't from the U.S. And I, I was so exotic to them. They're like, wow, what is your story? What is your background? And we got along really well. I think they were all really interested in understanding kind of my dad's background. He studied in former Soviet Union, met my mom there. My mom moved back with him to Sierra Leone. So she's white, he's black, uh, and lots of other things to go into there. But then the fact that I was able to come to the U.S. and try and make, make my life for myself, I think we connected. I know for a fact that I was uh, I helped open their worlds to what an immigrant can look like. Um, and I think I was too young at that time for us to have really in-depth debates about immigration policy or any of that, but it was, and I still keep in touch with, with them to this day. The CEO and founder, he calls me every, every year on my birthday and we talk about uh, their progress, et cetera. And so I resonate with this notion of just getting to know who the person is 
what they care about. I think sometimes with immigration, it can be about, I don't want people coming in and taking my jobs that my kids should be taking. I'm worried about a lot of change. And I think getting to put a face and a story behind it and seeing what that's like and, uh, and then kind of figuring out what works best uh, within within the realms of like laws, et cetera. I know there's lots of nuances there if we start talking about dreamers, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. But that's one story that comes to mind for me where it was my first experience with people who didn't know a lot of foreigners. And I, I think the the unknown is often what's scary. You know, it's, it's like, yeah. I don't know what something is. It, it um, I make assumptions about it or I'm uh, scared of, of, of this thing that feels different or foreign. And then once mm -hmm. something is known, you know, you often find all the commonalities and you see uh, yourself and the other person or, or, or what, um, what is shared. And I think if, if I had like one hope for, for most Americans is that they do get to experience parts of the country that might be unknown to them. But once there, um, there's so much richness and, and goodness across the country that uh, it really makes you proud. Like my feeling on the road was always pride uh, in the country that it's just so beautiful and people really are warm, even if they are so different from you in politics, religion, or uh, daily life. And uh, yeah, I, it, I, I always um, used to tell Chris, like there, there's this thing called birthright uh, for Jews to go to Israel where it's a free trip to yeah. Israel. And it's something that every Jew gets uh, to take advantage of. Um, and I wish there was something like that for America that you could uh, get to, um, mm. you know, have a tour of the country and really see the different parts and meet people from different parts. Because there's something so special about the people and the land. I agree. 320 million people, so much diversity in terms of land, cultures, food. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. I love hearing that you felt the sense of pride uh, and unity. In terms of this notion of polarization, we talked about getting to know the other human being, getting to know their family, what drives them. I think at the end of the day, we're all people. We want to keep our loved ones safe. We want to have food on the table, a roof over our heads. What else stuck at you in terms of ways to have productive conversations with people across the aisle? Mm -hmm. um, well, I definitely think there's something special about having meals together. I think sitting mm. down over a dinner, breaking bread. Uh, there's something really special about that. And uh, it's very hard to um, I think, get into something super contentious when you are sitting together as people sharing, sharing a meal. So I thought that was, that was really special. Um, I think the, the other one uh, that, that Chris and I really came to believe strongly is I think everybody has, has something they are proud of to, to your question earlier. Um, in their backgrounds, in their stories. Um, and I think finding what that is allows you uh, to tap into the best of that person and, and let them bring forward uh, the thing that they're most eager to share. Um, and it it also gives, you know, the listener some amount of appreciation for them. And so, you know, often Chris is incredible at this because he's a journalist. journalist. He's also just got like the most warm heart of anyone I know. And every person we met, he was able to kind of bring that out. Like, what, what was it in their life that they were proud of or cared about and um, uh, ended up creating these deep bonds. Um, and typically on the road, I think there was often an immediate receptivity to me uh, whenever we met someone because I'm a veteran and mm -hmm. uh, military veterans are just kind of scattered across the country. Um, I think we get broad respect wherever we go. But after the door was opened, I think Chris is the one who really forged these bonds with everyone we met because he did connect with them on that that feeling of pride or passion that, that every person has. I'd love to meet Chris too at some point. And what a great book, everyone. Please try and pick up Union. It's definitely worth a read. Okay. So Jordan, we both moved to Austin. You grew up in LA and then we were both in the Bay Area and in New York City and we just moved to the middle of the country. What do you feel like people from the coasts and the middle of the country should know about each other? as we try and get closer together and talking more, especially looking forward into the next election cycles? Mm, that's a great question. I think the the middle of the country has this, I think, almost like comical bias of the coast that it's super liberal, progressive, wealthy, detached from sort of normal American values. And my experience of it is very different. I think, of course, like cities have their own unique culture, but 
all all the you know the coasts are dominated by open space and and rural areas that um uh you know look almost entirely the same as as most of the country and you have cities in the middle of the country that look just like the coast and yeah. so I, I think there's much more uniformity than than people realize and of course there's differences between city life and, and rural life or, or you know exurban life um but they're not as dramatic as people think and one of the things i love about austin our new city is that you do have this you know, progressive urban core but you know within 10 minutes you're in a you know stereotypical uh middle of america environment where you know, there's lots of gun stores there's uh, mm-hmm. uh farms and and um what ends up happening is you do get this blending in Austin that's 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 fairly unique. You know, you have people walking around in cowboy boots and cowboy hats next to uh, you know hipsters, and it creates this blend. Um, and what I would love for people to experience is just there's so many benefits to both. I, I think there's you know there's something really fun about the sort of I don't know what else, what word to call it except almost like cowboy ish. Um, uh, ethos that yeah. that's just outside the city, and I think there's yeah. also something really amazing about the blend of culture and the incredible richness of of an urban center. And so, um, Austin does have this great blend, and the two parts of the country I think um, could come to really appreciate uh, each other. About each other. Yeah, I. It's so interesting to me because I totally agree that the U.S. is so much more similar than people in various parts of the country think. Uh, I think if you go to take Europe, for instance, or take Africa, uh, these are continents with so many countries, completely different cultures. And the U.S. is depending like you could take it's a continent, but it's one country. Uh, and regardless of where you go, you have similar types of highways, similar types of stores, very much more similar culture, same language, education system, et cetera, barring a few places, maybe. Um, and for instance, it's interesting to me that people may be in. The Midwest may have a, and this is not all people, but some people may have a very negative impression of people in the South. Uh, and I think things get contentious when you think of like voting, et cetera. Um, but just from my perspective as an immigrant, having lived and visited these regions, to me, um, you're, uh, people are so similar. And I think people are very friendly and human and have the same values wherever I go. And to me, it's it's more of how about I wish we would have less, maybe make judgments less, be more open. And to your point, just have these conversations, break bread with others and, and just talk to each other. And I I'm curious, is it wishful thinking to or, or very optimistic to think that we can somehow uh, come together at, in the future? Um is that in us as a country, as human beings in the United States? I personally think so. Uh, I think that there's a cycle to kind of American politics and American life. And we're in one of these very divisive cycles because um, a whole variety of reasons. I think the economy has changed. I think daily life has changed. Technology has um, impacted our lives in so many ways. And um, there's just really strong disagreement on what the way forward is. But I think often in American history, you have that. And then there is a, um, a synthesis where we do figure out either through some great leader or some um, you know, new movement, a, a new path. And, and there ends up being a lot of alignment on that path. And a lot of the division uh, at least gets channeled in other ways, but uh, I think often tempers. Um, and I, I think we're, uh, we're in one of these bad cycles, but we will get through it. And Part of the process is working through these hard issues and realizing that maybe we actually do all agree uh, on on some core things that we can align on. Um, so I think that will happen. The, the biggest challenge I personally think we face right now is that social media has created an outrage engine and it, it has polarized the country so deeply. And I think one of the common kind of reactions is something like, well, only 20% of America is on Twitter and only 1% of of that 20 is is actually very vocal on it and so it's just the two you know fringes yelling at each other but the problem is that does filter down to everybody because you know the the one percent drive the 20 percent, and the 20 percent end up affecting the news and the politician rhetoric um and so it does filter down and and that 
outrage engine is is I think that's a systemic challenge we face, and there there has to be some solution there. But assuming we do fix that, um, I think the country is much more aligned than everybody thinks, and we'll get through this cycle, and hopefully, it'll lead to a new era of of prosperity and growth and um, uh, unity for the country. Yeah, be open, love one another, and uh, try and create these sacred spaces to have these conversations. And it's definitely hard, and it's something we all need to work on. Well, and uh, you know, you're again newly newly married, but I think one thing you realize in your personal relationships is that often the relationship itself just matters so much more than who wins yeah. on a given topic or or who's right oh, yeah. on a certain issue. And I think the country needs to realize that too, that you know we all have different political opinions. I want to win on mine. And it, it matters so much to me that that I you know get my policies that I want. But the higher value, the higher cause is that we stay united as a country. You know, this amazing project to create a multiracial multi-ethnic democracy is really hard and we have to work at that and not just care about our, you know, our most important political issues. Yeah. And then if you zoom out even further, stay united as a country. And then if you zoom out further, you have the geopolitical environment and can we just try and keep humans peaceful and can we try and minimize the number of deaths and war, which I feel really passionately about. And then you zoom out even further, guys, we live on planet earth and how about we try and preserve the planet so that our grandkids can be healthy and climate change doesn't make it uninhabitable. So I think it's also about perspective. And I love that you started with the relationship sometimes is more important than the issue at hand. Yeah, I, well, right, I definitely agree with that. You, you and I have talked about this because, I mean, you, your background, you've experienced civil war in Syria. Yeah. You also are part Ukrainian. Uh, and so <laughs> that's very visceral for you. And um I think for people who haven't experienced physical conflicts, like societal violence, it's um, once it happens, it's very hard to to come back from. It really breaks down social ties, and um, it's devastating. And so, I think for Americans, we're we're so fortunate that we exist in a society that doesn't have that. And yeah, to your point, I I think finding ways that not only can we preserve our unity here, but also expand it globally, um, yeah, is, is it's really maybe the highest value. Mm -hmm. I find myself sometimes feeling frustrated with societies maybe that haven't experienced war potentially. And I I'm trying not to, <laughs> to temper my frustration because um, I know that everyone's experience is their own. But it sometimes feels frustrating to me that we're bickering and fighting about some things when, hey, we have food, we have shelter, we can work together and we we can reach a solution. Whereas for instance, in Ukraine, currently we have people who are dying. Um, and I personally, I don't see what the solution is. We like, hopefully Putin can stop the fighting, but I don't see how that, I, I don't see the cards and I can't visualize how that happens. And it's devastating. Um, we have family there that are sheltering in place and that's a really horrible experience. And I'm curious as a veteran, whether you have some of those feelings as well with maybe civilian societies and how you handle that? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I definitely have the same feeling. I, I think it's uh, especially visceral right now with Ukraine and um, for all the reasons you just said, I, I find it really scary how quickly the rhetoric in the US and the conversation has become okay with how close we are to nuclear war. It, you know, it's been mentioned by the president, it's been thrown around by media and right. uh, Vladimir Putin has threatened it. and and it hasn't led to any sort of serious, sober discussion about, well, what do we do to create the off-ramp and prevent something cataclysmic from happening? And I think, back to your point, part of it is so few people have experience with it. You know, I don't know anyone today who knows what it looks like to see a nuclear right. explosion go off uh, because none of us have experienced that. And uh, there's some, there's a thinker I, I really like. I enjoy listening to him mm -hmm. and he talks about how you know, maybe we should explode a nuclear weapon in the air or at sea, you know, once every 10 years, just to remind people of how horrible this is and therefore mm -hmm. how much we need to just move away from it. Um, my experience in Afghanistan was that a country that has been riven by civil war and conflict for 30 years, there's almost nothing left that binds groups together. And so the Hazaras hate the Tajiks, the Tajiks hate the Pashtuns, the Pashtuns hate the Uzbeks. And there's nothing that unites them. And um, 
it, it, it does make me very concerned in the U.S. that that we just don't really understand what that kind of conflict looks like and and how awful it is to have as the the default state. Um, and I don't wish it on anyone to experience, but I wish there was some way that people could understand. I think the main the main point there is that in Afghanistan, thirty years of civil conflict has just led to a lot of hatred for the other side. Um, and in the U.S., I think one of the things I I believe and I hope is that uh, while we might have stereotypes about each other and we might get really angry at each other, that for the most part, there's not contempt across yeah. uh, different uh, groups. And we need to preserve that because I think once contempt seeps in, it, it really creates a, a toxic environment that can lead to real violence. And so um, I think that is the most important lesson I had from from war. What do you feel will drive contempt? In part, it, it's something you just get cultured into. You know, I think that the more you don't know someone, the more unknown and fear and judgments and rhetoric around the other side uh, and the anger that builds up, I, I think that's what that's what causes it. And the more you allow it to happen, I think the worse it gets. And so uh, I think it's really a responsibility for everyone to to try to avoid it in themselves and when they hear it to uh, to challenge it. Um, yeah. And usually it's hardest internally to your own side to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I was thinking in the context you were saying of personal relationships, I think contempt happens when you build up resentment, you're not communicating, you're not sharing, and you start to form judgments, and then it all just goes sideways. And if I try and think on a country level, it's obviously the extrapolation of that, really, most folks want the same thing, like food on your table, shelter, safety, your loved ones to prosper. And I'm glad that you think so too, that we can get there, because I'm definitely optimistic. I want to use this as an opportunity to transition into the work you're doing with America's Frontier Fund, because I think it's really interesting. So you're building a fund meant to protect America's competitive advantage when it comes to the global development context. So I'd love to give you the floor to tell me more about kind of what's the problem that you see and how AFF is addressing it. Uh, sure. Well, I've been working on America's Frontier Fund for a little over a year now, and uh, it's it's been so much fun and, and so hard in, in a good way. Um, the, the basic problem we're addressing is that over the last 30 years, in a variety of hard technology areas, uh, the U.S. has really watched its ecosystems diminish. So in semiconductors, um, there's very few people under 40 who work in the semiconductor industry today because talent just has decided that it's not an attractive place to go. Um, as a result, as talent has gone down, uh, venture capital has stayed away, entrepreneurs don't create companies there, and yet uh, semiconductors are a foundational technology that kind of powers everything. And over the last two years, I think the whole world has realized how critical they are. Um, you know, all of these recent U.S. policies on China have all focused on uh, ensuring that the U.S. semiconductor industry beats their industry. Um, we all sort of saw with supply chains with COVID how critical chips were in all of our electronics. And so semiconductors are like this incredibly important thing. And yet the U.S. ecosystem has has been uh, uh, dwindling. And so yeah. what America's Frontier Fund is looking to do is in these areas of critical economic competitiveness to begin to rebuild those ecosystems. And to us, it starts with capital, that you need to make sure that investing $1 of capital into the American sector is the best place for that money to go. It's better than the Chinese semiconductor industry, the Japanese one, or anywhere else. And in order to make that happen, we have to uh, reduce the cost of creating hardware technologies in the US, and we have to increase the speed and cycle time. So if it takes an entrepreneur you know, tens of millions of dollars in multiple years just to get to a prototype, no investor wants to do that. Um, but if you could do it very um, quickly and efficiently with less upfront capital, uh, then we can begin to get the capital markets investing again into these technologies. So that's what America's Frontier Fund is trying to achieve. We are a nonprofit organization so that we have a public benefit mission. Um, now, I think a conception about nonprofits is that they're inefficient, they can't hire good talent, um, and uh, they can't do like good investment. And I think every one of those assumptions is wrong. So a nonprofit can raise its own investment funds. They're structured like 
a normal venture fund underneath the nonprofit. Uh, we've hired incredible talent, mostly driven by the mission uh, that we're focused on. Um, and we can make great investments. And I think there are a few good examples of this across uh, the last 20 years. So the CIA has a venture fund. It's a nonprofit. It has some of the best returns of any venture fund in the Valley. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's what we're looking to do is, is get an incredible team to make foundational investments into the American technology base, uh, and then to begin to build these ecosystems around it, connecting you know, universities with R&D and talent into companies that want to create the next generation of hard technology in America. Um, and so that's, that's what we're trying to achieve. You brought up a few things here. So making it more affordable to invest in things like deep tech and advanced manufacturing and the industries that you think we need to build back on in the U.S. And then you also mentioned uh, that it usually takes a long time to to be able to get returns on these investments. So sounds like your model is to fund these technologies and help them along the way such that then they can get more investments from the capital markets. Yes, exactly. We've deployed some capital. We've raised about 10 million just for our own early startup costs. Um, and so we can use that to make some early investments. Uh, but right now we're raising a much, much larger fund. We're raising a 500 million uh, deep tech fund at the moment. Um, and the way we think about deploying it is first that there needs to be a better uh, environment for these companies. And so a big part of our effort is working with government to shape their investments. So the U.S. government just passed $54 billion for semiconductors. Yeah. Uh, this is called the CHIPS Act. Mm-hmm. And that money goes to subsidize uh, infrastructure or manufacturing facilities. And so our argument to the government is that rather than just give that money to some of the really big fabs that uh, are going to produce chips for like an Apple or a Google, that some of that manufacturing subsidy should go to build experimental fabs that can take R&D prototypes out of universities um, and help startups build prototypes. And at the moment, a startup in the U.S. that wants to build a new chip, they might have to send their chip all the way over to Taiwan or to Singapore or Belgium just to get a prototype. And that's so expensive and it takes so much time. Why don't we build those experimental fabs right here in the U.S. and allow every startup to have access to it at reduced cost um, so that's easier to build here? So that's kind of step one for us. Step two is to kind of forge those relationships, you know, getting the government to work with Intel to build an experimental fab uh, and then connecting it into universities like Purdue and the local environment there. Um, to us, that's what lowers the cost for, for startups. And then lastly is the actual investment in company building. And so our own funds get deployed into these startups. You know, we have great venture investors on our team. And then we, you know, we do the hard work of helping them build their companies uh, over time. That's so exciting. How are you even managing your day? This sounds like you're working with the government, raising money, advising on how to deploy, deploying your own capital. What does your day look like? (laughs) Yeah. So we have an awesome team. Uh, It's 18 people. It's kind of roughly split between investors, uh, former policymakers, and Mm -hmm. yes. And and so the team is, is really, you know, they're each working on a huge component of this. And so my job is really fundraising. Uh, I think this is sort of normal for most uh, founders and, yeah. and, uh, and, and CEOs that, that most of their day, probably 50 to 70% of my day is spent fundraising just to make sure we have the capital we need to survive as an organization and, and mm-hmm. to execute our mission. And so I've been uh, using the GSB network. I've been using my, my own network to, to, raise, to raise money on the private sector side. And then we also have to spend a lot of time building buy-in among the government. So I do spend a fair amount of time in D.C. talking on the Hill and, and meeting with government agencies, um, explaining what we're doing and educating them on the challenges. A couple of follow-ups since you just mentioned being on the Hill and in D.C. Uh, I, I am curious, what do you think the U.S. needs to invest in to be competitive with countries like China that are investing trillions in these types of spaces and advanced tech and deep tech? Mm-hmm. Um, so the first is, uh, I'm going to start with like the things everybody agrees on and then maybe the things we don't agree on. Um, mm-hmm. I think everyone agrees on the Hill today that we need to make more foundational investments into our manufacturing base. Uh, that was a big part of the CHIPS Act. And um, and that's what these subsidies are now for. Uh, we have to bring back American manufacturing. The, the biggest reason is that when you separate your R&D from your manufacturing, you lose a lot of the innovative potential. You know, so much gets learned at that intersection. 
And without it, we're, we're unlikely to develop sort of the next generation of innovation. Um, it yeah. also just makes it way more expensive for, uh, for American entrepreneurs. Um, so that has to be brought back. Um, I think the second is we really need to invest in our talent and workforce. So, you know, getting more people into engineering, uh, into STEM, but also the vocational training. So any manufacturing facility requires like specialized plumbing and ele electricians, and there's a huge talent gap on the order of millions of jobs uh, wow. for those areas in the U.S. But those are like great paying jobs that can provide pathways to the middle class. And so that has to be a big area. Um, the third, and this is very much on the policy side, and it's not popular, um, but a lot of the challenge today in building these manufacturing facilities or processing plants uh, is environmental regulations. We've made it so hard to build in the United States to get approval for these really hardware-intensive industrial facilities that it's, it's 10 times cheaper to go build overseas. And that, that's a self-imposed problem. Uh, and it doesn't mean that because it's built overseas that it's bad for the environment. In fact, it's, it's worse for the environment to do it over there than to do it here. And so we have to figure out how to have a good regulatory environment in the U.S. That means you know, we produce things cleanly and that's good for the environment. Yeah. Uh, but we can't do it in a way that forces everything offshore because that's, that's what happens today. And it's sort of the worst of all worlds. It's like bad for American manufacturing and it's bad for the world. Yeah, it's not very sustainable and leads to dependencies in other countries and supply chain delays and all of this. Okay, so that was my Hill question. And then you had mentioned basically how are you getting this done is your team. You're 18 people strong. Your team is super impressive. I know. I know you have the former head of InQtel, which you mentioned is a CIA VC. You had former of Defense, Ash Carter, who were mourning this week a very unfortunate early death. How, Jordan, because I, I believe this was your idea, how did you get this incredible band of people together? Can you tell us what that was like? And you've had incredible investors come on board as well. I don't know if I'm allowed to say who they are, but mm -hmm. how did you get these group of folks together? Yeah, so I think it um, it's sort of a combination of like a, a really compelling vision that um, a lot of people have been talking about for a long time, and it just took like an initial push. And then I also think it it started with a few people who gave me social proof and allowed me to kind of build on their platform and reputation. Uh, the most important of which was Eric Schmidt. So I worked for Eric Schmidt the last five years. He's an incredible leader, and I think he's a unique figure in American life. He can bridge Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley, I think, better than anyone else. He's broadly trusted by both. And so when he says something's important, a lot of people listen. And so when uh, I brought him this idea and said, I really believe in this, he said, if you can find a partner, I will support you. Uh, and so I spent a few months kind of painting the vision to a few other great leaders. And I finally met Gilman Louie, who is the first CEO of InQtel, uh, incredible figure himself, successful investor and entrepreneur, and also trusted by the government. And after two months of kind of talking together, we decided to launch this venture together. We brought it back to Eric and Eric gave us our first check. And it was a fairly nice. big check. And so having Eric Schmidt kind of give us his stamp of approval, I think led everything to snowball. And so at that point, we could go to someone like HR McMaster or Ash Carter, and they were willing to join um, and as the board members joined, uh, the vision became stronger and, and then team members started joining and, um, you know, the truth is we're a nonprofit, so we can pay about half as much as, as most organizations. Um, but it was the strength of the vision and the people who had signed up early that I think allowed us to, uh, to really gain momentum. And we've been able to build on that, raising more capital and, um, hiring better teammates and bringing on more yeah. advisors and. Uh, it just, it, keep, it keeps growing. And so I think the the challenge going forward is, is sustaining that vision and sustaining the momentum. Um, and while it's true for any startup that they have to keep building momentum uh, in order to survive, I think it's especially true for us as a nonprofit that, you know, really what, what, what matters is that people believe like we can actually solve this challenge in a way that no one's been able to, to do before. And, um, and that requires like constantly just pitching the vision, delivering you know, concrete progress against it, and making sure that the team members are, are inspired to, to continue on. Yeah. Can you share what it's like pitching Eric, pitching Peter Thiel? Uh, obviously, this is a huge vision. 
a very important vision and it makes sense that we want this to exist. You're an amazing founder fit to be solving this problem, given your past experiences and then matching that up with Gilman. But what else contributes and, and what's it like pitching these guys? Mm -hmm. um, so with Eric, uh, I've had five years with him, so I, I, I know him very well at this point. And early on, he, he is very skeptical. Um, he, he has one of the sharpest minds and can quickly pinpoint kind of where he sees the biggest weakness or flaw in your structure. Okay. Um, he's an engineer by training. And so I think mm -hmm. he very naturally can think about like, what is, you know, what are the design constraints and what's the weakness in your design? Um, and, and so over time I built up a lot of credibility with him and he, he also knows what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. Um, and so by the time I brought him the pitch, I think he was already on board with, with me as a person to bet on. And then the question was, does my construction make sense? And, uh, I think he goes in with eyes very wide open about, you know, what are the risks, what are the challenges and probably knows it better than me. Um, but he's still willing to kind of take the bet just on the person and the idea. And so, uh, our, our pitch with him was actually fairly easy because, uh, Gilman and I both have known him for a long time and, uh, he trusts us as people, even if, you know, he knows that the challenge we have ahead. Um, Peter was, was pretty fascinating, uh, to pitch. He, um, he spent 20 minutes kind of pressure testing our idea from multiple directions. And they were the hardest questions I've ever gotten uh, to this day on, on what we're doing. Um, and he clearly just has such a sharp mind for, for strategy and complex stakeholder management, um, and, and just what makes a good idea. And after 20 minutes, he, he sat there for about three minutes, uh, just kind of thinking. And then he said, okay, like I'll invest. And it was, it was, that, it was that sort of quick. Um, and I think what impressed me so much about it, it was he, he very quickly could, could kind of identify all the important features of it. And then he could sit there and evaluate in his mind the costs and benefits and quickly make a decision. Um, and there are obviously parallels between Eric and Peter in that sense. Uh, you know, I think they approach it differently. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, they were able to make a quick judgment about the people behind it, the, the vision that we were going for, and trust that we would iterate to find the actual like proper model um, over the long term uh, and make decisions quickly. Yeah. And what are you learning from Gilman and the other folks on your team? Uh, so I think, you know, one the thing I, I'm most impressed with Gilman uh, for is that he's he's 62 years old. He has made a lot of money in his life. He's had a ton of success. He's on maybe a dozen different high-level boards and, and government advisory commissions. And even then, he was able to go back to being a founder. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, when we first started pitching people, it was me and him, and we had this crappy deck that we made on PowerPoint. And he was going up to senators and billionaires and handing it to them and saying, we need this. We need to go build this. And I think that level of, of putting yourself at risk, having a vision and going and selling the vision and, and not being embarrassed by like the presentation or the fact that it's just me and him, um, I'm really impressed by his courage in that sense. And he's just constantly coming up with new ideas and, and bigger visions that that he's willing to go sell. Um, and so I, I think that's an incredible skill. I hope it's something that that I develop over time to, to just be able to put myself at risk uh, for yeah. ideas. Um, so I, I, I think that's that's incredible. Uh, the other you know, people we've brought on the team, I, I think I've I've learned from each of them and how they approach uh, what we're doing. Um, you know, I think the the most important one to me is half our team is probably above fifty and half is is below forty. Um, and I'm very impressed by the over fifty year olds just on how willing they are to you know take a bet on a young person and, and say like I'm willing to put myself in your hands and uh, and sign up for this idea and you know let's, yeah. let's see what happens. And for the younger people, um, there's there's such a a drive on the team to succeed. You know, no one's getting paid carry. No one's getting paid equity. And yet, uh, the, being a part of a mission and a broader cause is really galvanizing. And I'd say the people I'm, I'm working with now under 40 are some of the most talented people I've ever met. And I would work with them in any capacity, anywhere, whether it's for-profit, non-profit, doesn't matter. Um, a lot of them are actually veterans and, and that might be a big piece of it too. It reminds me of the earlier part of our conversation too. You can have very different humans, but you can respect each other and 
value each other and admire each other and work so well together. And I'm so glad that you're experiencing that. I wanted to zoom out a little bit in the context of how we're building up America's competitiveness in the context of global development. I know we're involving government. We need government funding and investments in universities and bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. and enabling the development of these technologies that take over 10 years, which outside of a normal VC timeframe for when they like to invest. And there's all these pieces together that come in play. But if we zoom out to the global context, how do we build a project like yours and build more of these to build up manufacturing in the U.S. in a way that doesn't feel uh, like escalating with countries like China and more fosters a healthy competition instead. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think that's a really great framing to the question. Uh, I think the biggest risk we have is that we start viewing China as an enemy or uh, that we're in a cold war with them. Um, and I think that becomes self-fulfilling. And so recently there's been a lot of moves by both political parties to kind of paint China that way and to put in what are what I would view as like very aggressive protectionist measures, uh, like expert controls or trying to shut off investment into China. And I think that's the wrong approach. I, I think the right approach is to try to promote U.S. strengths um, and to really focus inward on what can we do to make ourselves the best place in the world for innovators to come build. And I think that kind of spans um, everything from, you know, we need to have vibrant capital markets that will invest in these hard areas and take bets on you know, risky ventures. I think we need to build up our talent base. Uh, and so to inspire young people to kind of move into these hard engineering fields and then to uh, build up the skilled trades that will make ourselves um, competitive. Um, I think it applies to immigration. You know, we have incredible talent coming to our universities from all over the world. And we don't really make it easy for them to stay and especially to build here. Um, you know, to me, the biggest tragedy is that a lot of semiconductor companies that are being built now, uh, they're American trained. Uh, at the university, but they were either not allowed to stay or it's just too hard to build here. And so, you know, fixing that, making it so entrepreneurs and immigrants can stay and, and build here. Um, and then lastly, to like really celebrate and, and uh, uh, encourage success in these areas. Um, that is all something we can do internally. It has nothing to do with China. It has nothing to do with Russia or any other country. Yeah. Um, and so focusing on, on how to make America the most innovative country in the world. That, that to me is, is the, is the secret to success. Um, I think there's one other piece of this, which is, uh, I think, you know, we have sort of our national level policy and investment, uh, that's going on. And I, I think we also have, um, you know, we have great entrepreneurs, we have great venture investors who are doing their thing. And I think there's often no bridge between them. There's no intermediating layer. And, uh, I think what we're trying to do with America's frontier fund is build an institution that can kind of connect the two. Uh, you know, we're not a for-profit, we're not just building companies, and we're also not just a think tank kind of producing reports, but we're really trying to connect uh, national level policy and strategy to the people on the ground who are going to build. And uh, as we head into kind of this new, this new era of um, great power competition, I think there is a need to build more institutions. Uh, and that can happen in a variety of areas. Um, but, you know, we haven't seen many institutions built over the last uh decade or two. Um, but there, there was a ton of them built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And we can do that, do that again. again. Um, and the fun thing is, it's kind of its own version of entrepreneurship. And I think, yeah. you know, a lot of our classmates uh, are well positioned to go do stuff like that. Awesome. That's the next step we need to take. All right, Jordan, do you consider yourself a patriot? Yes, I, I absolutely love this country. I love its people. Um, I love uh, the ethos and philosophy behind America and like what, what, what's represented in the world. Um, I think we have a lot of challenges, but it's, it's never been without challenges. And I think, uh, the promise of America is always tempered by the reality of, of, uh, of its history and, um, and its current reality. Um, but that promise is something that everybody can really believe in and work towards. So, uh, 100% I, yeah, I'm a patriot. Love it. What do you think makes a good patriot in 2022? Um, going back to I think our earlier conversation, yeah. I think it's someone who really puts unity over um, uh, the relationship we have together as Americans um, over any single partisan issue, um, and that believes in your word, optimism. That that we can mm -hmm. have 
a better day. We can overcome the problems we face. We can build a more perfect union. Um, I think it's it's that combination of of believing in the, the relationship of the country and and uh, the hope for a better future. And what would you have young patriots, maybe in school or in grad school, law school, business school, public policy school, what do you think young patriots in the U.S. should be doing today when they graduate? Mm -hmm. I think that one, build relationships with people who are not like you. Uh, I, I think small acts like that actually really do layer up to a, a better union. And second, to try to do something in your life that promotes the common good. Uh, uh, serving the public in some way. That could be everything from finding a local organization to be involved in uh, to devoting yourself to military service um, and everything in between. But I think some active service and, and participation in the civic uh, polity is, is um, it's really important. Awesome. Thanks, Jordan. It was wonderful to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.